Section 4 of Edmond Dantes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Edmond Dantes by Edmund Flagg. Chapter 4. The News from Algeria. Beauchamp, the journalist, sat at his desk in his editorial sanctum early one bright morning in the autumn of 1841. He had gone to work long before his usual hour, for important movements were on foot, the political atmosphere was agitated, and Paris was in a state of feverish excitement. Besides, Beauchamp had that day printed in his journal a dispatch from Algeria that would be certain to cause a great sensation, and with a proper spirit of pride, the journalist desired to be at his post that he might receive the numerous congratulations his friends could not fail to offer, as the dispatch had appeared in his paper alone. The sanctum had not an attractive look. In fact, it was rather dilapidated. While, in addition, the disorder occasioned by the previous night's work had not been repaired, and all was chaos and confusion. Beauchamp was busily engaged in glancing over the rival morning papers when Lucien de Bray entered and seated himself at another desk. The ministerial secretary smiled upon the journalist in a knowing way, and the latter, nodding to him with an air of triumph, silently pointed to the pile of journals he had finished examining. Lucien took them up, and without a word began scanning their contents. "'Glorious news, that, from the army in Algeria,' cried Chateau Renaud, rushing into the sanctum. "'Glorious indeed,' replied the editor, looking up from the paper over which he was hurriedly skimming. On the huge table at his side, as well as beneath it, and under his feet, and his capacious armchair, nothing was to be seen but newspapers. "'Take a chair, Renault, if you can find one, and help yourself to the news. You see, I have Lucien similarly engaged yonder.' The ministerial secretary glanced up from his papers, returned his friend's salutation, and resumed his reading. He was dressed with his customary elegance and richness but his form and face were fuller than when last before the reader, and his brown hair was besprinkled with grey. "'I congratulate you, Beauchamp, on being the first to give the news,' continued Chateau Renaud. "'Not a paper in Paris but your own has a line from the army this morning.' "'Rather congratulate me and my paper on having a friend at court.' Huh, "'And that explains the fact, otherwise inexplicable, that an opposition journal has intelligence,' which only the Bureau of War could have anticipated. Treason! Treason! The editor and the secretary exchanged significant smiles. Oh, I don't doubt that your favors are reciprocal, continued the young aristocrat, laughing. I've half a mind to be something useful to myself. Minister, editor, anything but an idler and a lawgiver, just to experience the exquisite sensation of a new pleasure the pleasure of revealing and publishing to the world something it knew not before. Why, you two fellows in this dark and dirty little room are the two greatest men in Paris this morning, or were, rather, before your paper, Beauchamp, laid before the world what only you and Lucien knew previously. Oh, the delight, the rapture of knowing something that nobody else knows, and then of making the revelation. And this news from Algeria is really important remarked the editor. Important, so important that it will be before the chambers this morning, replied the secretary. So I supposed, said the deputy, 
and called to learn additional particulars, if you had any, on my way to the chambers. We gave all we had, my dear Lycurgus, and for that we were indebted to an official dispatch, telegraphed to the war office, and faithfully re-telegraphed to us by our well-beloved Lucien. It's true, then, as I have sometimes suspected, that the wires radiate from the minister's sanctum to the editors, was the laughing rejoinder. It must be so, or there's witchcraft in it. There's witchcraft, at any rate, in this new invention. Speed, secrecy, security, and surety. No eastern genius of Arabian fiction can be compared to the electric telegraph. And how ministers or editors continue to keep the world in vassalage, as they always have done, without this ready slave, seems now scarce less wonderful than the invention itself. Instead of detracting from the power of the press, the telegraph renders it more powerful than ever. "'But affairs in Algeria, is not the news splendid?' cried the editor. "'Why do we not all become spahis and win immortality, as some of our generals have?' "'As to immortality,' said the secretary, "'we should have been far more likely to win the phantom as dead men than as living heroes.' "'Debray was at the raising of the siege of Constantine,' said Beauchamp, laughing, "'and knows all about the honors of war.' Yes, indeed, and all about the raptures of starvation, of cold and hunger, after victory, and the ecstatic felicity of being pursued by six Bedouins, and after having slain five, having my own neck encircled by the Yatagan of the Sixth. And how chanced it that you saved your head, Lucien? asked the Count. Save it? I didn't save it. But a most excellent friend of mine, a friend in need, galloped up and saved it for me. "'Yes,' replied Beauchamp, "'our gallant friend, Maximilian Morel, the, the captain of Spahis, now colonel of a regiment, and in the direct line of promotion to the first vacant baton. Eh, Lucien? A lucky thing to save the head of one of the war office from a Bedouin's yatagan. Up, up, up like a balloon has this young Spahi risen ever since.' "'You are wrong, Beauchamp. Not like a balloon. Rather like a planet.' Maximilian Morel is one of the most gallant young men in the French army, and step by step, from rank to rank, has he hewn his own path with his good saber in a strong hand, nerved by a brave heart and proud ambition, to the position he now holds. His name I see among the immortals in the dispatch of this morning. Well, well, Morel is a splendid fellow, no doubt, but it's a splendid thing to have friends in the war office, nevertheless who will give that splendor a chance to shine, will plant the lighted candle in a candlestick and not smother its beams under a bushel. Morel has now been in Africa five whole years, said the secretary, a few months only accepted after his marriage with Villefort's fair daughter, Valentine, as was said when he was indulged with a furlough for his honeymoon. She is not in Paris, asked Beauchamp. No, she leads the life of a perfect recluse with her child, during her husband's absence, at his villa somewhere in the south, near Marseilles, where the department forwards her letters. Yet she is said to be a magnificent woman, remarked the Count. Wonderful, cried Beauchamp, a magnificent woman and a recluse. Oh, but it was a love match of the most devoted species, you must remember. True, she was to have married our friend, Franz Depenay, and died to save herself from that fate, I suppose and afterwards was resurrected, and blessed Morel with her hand and heart, 
and the most exquisite person that even a jaded voluptuary could covet. Happy, happy, happy man. Apropos of dying, said the secretary, do you remember how fast people died at Monsieur de Vifo's house about that time? Horrible! A whole family of two or three generations, one after the other. First Monsieur and Madame de saint Morin, then Barois, the old servant of Monsieur Noirtier, then Valentine, and last of all, Madame de Villefort and Edward, her idol. No wonder that Monsieur de Procure de Roy himself went mad under such an accumulation of horrors. By the by, Debray, is Monsieur de Villefort still an inmate of the Maison Royale de Charenton? I know nothing to the contrary, replied the secretary who had resumed his paper, and to whom the subject seemed not altogether agreeable. He is an incurable. And then to turn the subject, he continued, Apropos of the immortals of Algeria, here is a name that seems destined even to a more rapid apotheosis than that of the favored Morel. You mean Joliet? said the editor, who, in the name of all that is mysterious and heroic, is this same Joliet? I have found it impossible to discover, with all the means at the command of the press. And I, with all the means at the command of the government. All we can discover is this, that he is a man of about twenty-five, that he enlisted at Marseilles, and in less than three years has risen from the ranks to the command of a battalion. His career has been most brilliant. And to whose favor does he owe his wonderful advancement, Beauchamp? asked the deputy, laughing to that of Marshal Bougot, Governor-General of Algeria, ah, who has indulged him with an appointment in every forlorn hope. Excellent, cried the Count. What more could a man resolve to be a military immortal desire? Immortality the goal, two paths conduct to it, each sure, death, life, the former the shorter, and perhaps the surer, but there is one name I never see in the war dispatches. Do you ever meet with it? Monsieur's editor and secretary? I mean the name of our brilliant friend, Albert de Mosset. The rumor ran that after the disgrace and suicide of the Count, his father, he and his mother went south, and he later to Africa. I have hardly seen the name of Mosset in print since the paragraph headed Yanina in my paper, about which poor Albert was so anxious to fight me. Nor I, said Debray, but where now is Madame de Mosset? Without exception, she was the most splendid specimen of a woman I ever saw. <laughs> High praise that, cried the Count, laughing. Who would suppose our cold, calculating, ambitious, haughty, talented, and opulent diplomat and aristocrat had so much blood in his veins? When before he was known to admire anything, male or female, but himself, or at all events to be guilty of the bad taste of expressing that admiration. Debray is right replied the journalist somewhat gravely. Madame de Morcerf was indeed a noble and dignified woman, accomplished, lovely, dignified, amiable. Stop, stop, in the name of all that's forbearing, be consider of my weak nerves. You too, Beauchamp. Well, she must have been a paragon to make the conquest of two of the most inveterate bachelors in all Paris. But where is this marvel of excellence? Uh, pardon me, Beauchamp, perceiving that the journalist looked yet more grave, and seemed in no mood for bantering or being bantered. Where does Madame de Morcerf at this present time? At Marseilles, I have heard. 
and is married again no she is yet a widow and is a recluse like morel's beautiful wife so says report they dwell together how romantic the young wife whose hero husband is winning glory amid the perils of war and pestilence pours her griefs joys and anticipations into the bosom of the young mother who appreciates and reciprocates all because she has a son exposed to the same perils and both beautiful as the morning a charming picture two immortals in epaulets and sashes in the background are only wanted instead of one but i must to the chambers monsieur dantes is expected to speak in the tribune this morning upon his measure for the workmen do you know count who this monsieur dantes really is asked debray there's a question for a ministerial secretary to ask a member while a journalist sits by i only know of monsieur dantes that he is the most eloquent man i ever listened to i don't mean that he's the greatest man or the profoundest statesman or the wisest politician or the sagest political economist but i do mean that for natural powers of persuasion and denunciation for natural oratory i have never known his rival if plato's maxim that oratory must be estimated by its effects is at all correct then monsieur dantes is the greatest orator in france for the effect of his oratory is miraculous there is a sort of magic in his clear sonorous powerful yet most exquisitely modulated voice and the wave of his arm is like that of a necromancer's wand you are enthusiastic count observed beauchamp but very just Monsieur Dantes is indeed a remarkable man, and possessed of remarkable endowments, both of mind and body. His personal advantages are wonderful. Such a figure and grace as his are alone worth more than all the powers of other distinguished speakers for popular effect. The eyes of the multitude are more eloquent than their ears, as the English Shakespeare says. I never saw such eyes and such a face, remarked Debray, but once in my life— do you remember the Count of Monte Cristo, Messieurs? We shall not soon forget him, was the reply. But this man differs greatly from the Count in most respects, though certainly not unlike him in others. True, replied the secretary. In manners, habits, costume, and a thousand other things, there is a marked difference. Besides, the Count was said to be incalculably rich, while the deputy has every appearance of being in very moderate circumstances but he leads a life so retired that he is known only in the chambers and in his public character i allude to the deputy's person when i speak of resemblance to that wonderful count who set all paris in a fever and more wonderful still kept it so for a whole season there is i know not what in his air and manners that often recalls to me that extraordinary man there are the same large and powerful eyes the same brilliant teeth for which the women envied the count so much the same graceful and dignified figure, the same peculiar voice, the same good taste in dress, and above all, the same colorless, pallid face, as if, to borrow the idea of the Countess of G, he had risen from the dead, or was a visitant from another world, or a vampire of this. Her celebrated friend, Lord B, she used to say, was the only man she ever knew with such a complexion. But if I recollect rightly, said Beauchamp, the Count of Monte Cristo was somewhat noted for his profusion of black hair and beard. The deputy Dantes is so utterly out of the mode, and out of good taste too, as to wear no beard, and his hair is short. His face is as smooth as a woman's, 
and he always wears a white cravat like a curé. But he is, nevertheless, one of the handsomest men in Paris, added the Count. At least the women say so. You might add, the deputy has many gray hairs among his black ones, and many furrows on his white brow, while Monte Cristo had neither. Uh, besides, Monsieur Dantes has a handsome daughter, and a son who resembles him greatly, both well-grown, while the Count was childless. "'Well, well, be his person and family what they may,' said the secretary, rising. "'I wish to God the ministry could secure his talents. "'I tell you, messieurs, that man's influence over the destinies of France is to be almost omnipotent. "'His powerful mind has grasped the great problem of the age, remuneration for labor. "'The next revolution in France will hinge upon that. Mark the prediction. "'And this man and his coadjutors among whom Beauchamp here is one, are doing all they can to hasten the crisis. The whole soul of this remarkable man seems devoted to the elevation of the masses, the laboring classes, the people, and to the amelioration of their condition. His efforts and those of all like him cannot ultimately succeed, but they will have a temporary triumph, and the streets of Paris will run with blood. These men are rousing terrible agencies. They are evoking the fiends of hunger and misery, which will neither obey them nor lie down at their bidding. And the magicians who have summoned these foul fiends will prove their earliest victims, said Chateau Renan in some excitement. Messieurs, listen a moment, cried Beauchamp, rising. Pardon me, but this discussion must cease, at least here. It can lead to no good result. As the conductor of a reform journal, I entirely differ with you both. But let not political differences interfere with our personal friendship. Come, come, old friends, let us forsake this place, redolent with politics, having a very atmosphere of discussion, and repair to the chambers, taking various on our way. Agreed, cried the deputy and the secretary, and the three left the journalist's sanctum arm in arm. End of section four.